I want to turn to another unbelieving witness, another person who has recognized what we have in Bible, doesn't believe it, actually believes it's oppressive, but you know what? This is a hard quote. So I think instead of reading it, I'm just going to explain it to you because it would probably take as long to explain it as just to explain it without reading it. This guy's a literary critic. He taught in one of the Ivy League universities. He's an atheistic Jew who escaped Germany uh, when, during the no- time of the Nazis, came to the United States and became a famous literary critic and wrote a very well-known book. And in this book about literary criticism, where he's talking about how stories work. The way stories work, he says, is that we suspend our disbelief. You know what that means? In other words, you pretend what's happening in the story is true. And you step into that story and you enjoy it. Maybe you're entertained. Maybe you learn something. Maybe there's an enrichment of your life. But st- and stories work in many ways, he says. Let me give an example. Um, a number of years ago, um, we, my son and I and my wife, and actually a few more of our family, went to see a Shakespeare play. Now, you can pity me because I have a very artsy family and I love sports. So I'm the only one that wants to watch a football game. Everybody else wants to go see Shakespeare or go to a concert or go to a play or something. So I go to a lot of concerts and a lot of plays and on the side watch football. So I went to Shakespeare and we saw Midsummer's Night's Dream. Midsummer Night's Dream. And in that particular Shakespeare, it, it was a popular version and it was excruciatingly funny. It was hilarious. And I remember sitting in that seat watching this enchanted forest with all these fairies flying around. And these fairies had magical powers and they had power to turn a man into a donkey and have a head where he just could bray. And we watched that, we watched that story. Now, can you imagine I'm sitting there with my wife and I start going, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. Can you believe this? Talking about enchanted forests? We know that's nonsense. What are we doing here? Look, look at this. Look at the head fairy. Look at what he does. He can't turn the guy into an ass. This is nuts. What are we doing here? If I did that, and I kept doing that, my gentle, kind wife would turn to me and say, shut up. I, whenever I say that, she's at the back. She says, I would never say shut up. <laughs> but what she would say is, be quiet. Don't you know how stories... She'd be thinking, but she'd be too kind to say it. Don't you know how stories work, you idiot? Don't you know that stories are things you enter into and you suspend the world you're in and you come in for a little while? Well, that's what we were doing for three hours. For three hours, we believed that such things existed, and then what we did is enjoyed that story, and at the end of three hours, we were laughing so hard, we were so entertained by that story, we stood up and we clapped and we walked out of the tent, 
and it was grand. And you know, when I walked out of the tent, I didn't start going, fairies. I wonder if there are fairies anywhere around here. I I wonder if I've got a human head still. I didn't walk around with this because I knew it was a story. And I knew when I left that story that I would be walking into the real world. So says Auerbach. That's how stories work. The way stories work, he says, is you enter into the story, you suspend your disbelief, you pretend, he's comparing here the Old Testament to Homer's Odyssey, you start believing that story for a little while, and then you enjoy it, and then you walk out entertained, enriched, whatever. He says that's how stories work. But he says, you know, that's not how the Bible works. Or he actually talking about the Old Testament as a Jew. He says that's not how the Old Testament works. The Old Testament tells the story and it claims to be true. So if you come in to worship and you are brought into this story, you don't walk out that door on Sunday morning at the end of the service and say, now I'm going into the real world. Now I'm going to leave that world behind and we know, you know, it's not true. No, what happens, he says, he says that we have to see the world differently. And he says we've got to fit our life and everything we know about the world into the story of the Bible. Somehow, everything out there, if the Bible is like it says it is, has to be fitted into this story. And he goes on to call this oppressive. He says it's oppressive, this Bible, making this claim. But that's the claim it's making, he says. And he says it's claiming to be a true story that you've got to live in. I find that oppressive, he said. But what he didn't see was that there's no such thing as a non-narrated real world, that if he didn't believe the biblical story, he was going to be living in a world narrated by another story, the story of enlightenment humanism, and that's where he comes from. So this is what Howard Bach is saying. The Bible's making an outrageous claim, he says. Unlike any other story he knows, it's claiming to be true. And if it says, that this is, if it says there's fairies in the forest, there are. Of course, it doesn't. But if it says there's God permeating the universe, then that's true. If he says that God is sovereign over all of history, then that's true. If he says that the person of Jesus Christ has died and risen again and those events determine and give us a lens on all of reality, then that's true. In other words, the way it narrates the world is true. And that's what Auerbach is claiming. It's rather interesting to hear these unbelievers who can see very clearly some reason this is not going. Is my thing not working? Can you see? Just a minute. This is the world of technology, which is not the real world. It's froze. What do I do? I don't know what comes next. We're so dependent on technology that if it casts us out of its world, (laughs) we're orphans. Hey, there we go. Thank you. Let's see if this works. Here's my third non-Christian witness. It's a a, uh, non-Christian sociologist who lives in Australia, 
And as a sociologist, he was asking this question, why is it that Christianity in Australia, New Zealand, Canada, Europe, and the United States, why is it shrinking? Why are the numbers in every part of Western culture going down? And why is the church in South America, Asia, and Latin America growing at three times the rate that it's shrinking in the West? Why is the church shrinking? He wanted to know. And he has no dog in the fight. He doesn't care. He's not a Christian. He just is interested as he studies this from his own secular humanistic standpoint, what has happened in the church. And here is his conclusion, and every time I read this, I feel ashamed. The waning of Christianity, as it is practiced in the West, is easy to explain. The Christian churches have comprehensively failed in their one central task, to retell their foundation story in such a way that it might speak to the times. What he's saying is there's two things. Number one, they're not passing along the story to the next generation, to their people, helping people see Christianity as a big story. And secondly, because the Christians don't see the story in its comprehensive scope, they can't make it speak to the urgent issues of the day. How do you make the gospel speak to technology? How do you make it speak to consumerism? How do you make it speak to all these areas that are dominating our life? And he's saying, when you don't have a big story anymore, you can't speak to those areas. If you've made this over here, the Christian story, and there's all these other areas, then these areas are going to be shaped by another story, and the more and more Christians are going to be drawn into that because they're not aware of the scope of Christ's authority. I find this is so fascinating. That he's, as he looks at it, he says, as I look at the churches in Australia especially, and the churches in the West, they're not telling the story. And incidentally, I want to say to you, I've used this quote in many countries of the world, and I always say, look in Phoenix. They're trying hard to do this. This is one, of the, this is one place where I am really excited that the churches are binding, bound, are coming together <laughs> so that they can bring this story and use it for discipleship and increasingly make it speak to the issues of the day. Still not working. We'll go to the next one. John Carroll. There you go. <laughs> That's who said it. This is going to be fun. Okay. Okay. Why is it important to understand the Bible as one story? Well, the most, I, I could give you a lot of reasons, but I'm going to give you basically one, and I'm going to, this will continue tomorrow. There's all, it's the only way I would argue the only way that we can resist being conformed to this world. The language of Romans 12, 2, he's writing to the Roman church and he's saying, I want you to offer the whole of your bodily lives up as a living sacrifice to God because you've seen the mercy that's displayed in Jesus Christ in the gospel. And based on that, Offer your whole bodily life up to Christ as a living sacrifice. No part is to remain outside. The whole of it consumed with serving Christ. That's what that whole image of living sacrifice is about. And then he says, there's three ways you can do that. Number one, 
don't be conformed to the world. And the word world, when Paul uses it usually, and John, when John uses it usually, mean culture shaped by idolatry. He's saying, don't allow yourself to be conformed to the Roman culture shaped by the idolatry of, if you know the Roman Empire, of power. To us, you might say, don't allow yourself to be conformed to the idolatry of American culture and its, well, there's a lot of idols, but it's consumerism, for example. Don't allow yourself to be conformed, shaped by that Western story in such a way that you are squeezed into its mold. But on the other hand, allow yourself to be transformed by the gospel. Allow yourself to be transformed by the true story. And then he says something that we will begin to see, struggle with more and more as you see these two comprehensive stories, culture and biblical. He says, only as you're struggling to say no to the idolatry of your culture and yes to the biblical story, then, then, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is as you struggle with that. Now, I think it's important... It always seems to pop up, but I think it's him doing it. It's coming. This will take a little longer. It's good we got two nights. There. Oh, oh, oh. Almost had it. Oh, we almost had it. Now we're going forward. I think it's this. We're going, we're jumping way ahead now. Tell you what, if you go back one, I'll take it. Okay, let's stop there. Forget what I had in the other one. I don't know what it was. Forget it. Stop it. No. No, no, no. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Many of you will have read this in the introduction to drama of Scripture. Uh, apparently, Tyler said when they started Surge, they started asking the leaders to take out this quote and start each time with it. Now, Jim Mullins has, recommends the same thing. I don't know if any of you leaders have done this or not. But let me tell you about a story about this quote. This quote was, give, was, I wrote it in the introduction to drama of Scripture, and then the publishers came to me and they said, this is too provocative, take it out. People will read this, not like you, stop reading your book. And I said, well, I don't care if they don't, I, I said, oh, okay. And so I went to my wife, and I said, should I keep it in? She said, yes, keep it in. I went to my co-author, should I keep it in? He says, yes, keep it in. So I raised myself up to my full height, and I went back to the publisher and says, no, I want to keep it in. They said, okay. And so I kept it in. And I didn't know. It was the first book I'd written, so I didn't know you could tell the publisher what you wanted, but I did. And he says, okay, it's kept in. Here's the irony. That quote has been quoted I know dozens and dozens of times in book reviews and in blogs. I've yet to see one time when this quote has been criticized. <laughs> they always read it and they say, boy, this really hits home. Now, make me promise that you're not going to read the last line. Look at me. Don't look up there. Look at me. <laughs> Don't read the last line. Okay, because that's the, you're looking at the last line. The last line is what they told me to take out. Let it sink in the rest of the quote first. And then I'll tell you, it's coming. If we allow the Bible to become fragmented, remember, moral bits, sermon bits, theological bits, historical critical bits, 
devotional bits. There's many ways to divide the Bible up into bits. Don't look at the last line. If we allow the Bible to become fragmented, it is in danger of being absorbed into whatever ever sorry, with whatever other story is shaping our culture, and it will thus cease to shape our lives as it should. Idolatry has twisted the dominant cultural story of the secular Western world. And if as believers we allow this story rather than the Bible to become the foundation of our lives, then our lives will not manifest the truth of Scripture but the lies of an idolatrous culture. Hence, the unity of the, of the Scripture is no minor matter. The publisher says, put a period there. Cut your losses. Here's what we kept in. A fragmented Bible may actually produce theologically orthodox, morally upright, warmly pious idol worshipers. I know it's provocative. I one time shared this with Richard Bauckham, and he said to me, I can see why the publisher thought you should take it out. He says, but it does make a point provocatively, and that's what I was trying to do. In other words, here's what can happen. We can have our theological ducks in a row, and believe me, that's important. We can also be morally upright, and again, that is really important. We can have a warmly pious relationship with Jesus, and again, that is important. I'm not saying anything about those things that's bad. I'm just saying we can have all of those things, but we can extract those things, moral things, theological bits, and even devotional bits out of the Scripture And what can happen is that these bits can be absorbed into the cultural story. And then the cultural story becomes the dominant story that is actually shaping our lives. I can think of a pastor right now, and I knew he was theologically orthodox, and boy, was he ever. He was morally upright to the point of legalism. He always talked about a relationship with Jesus. And I know the neighbors on his street used to say he's living out of the consumer story. That's the real story of his life. Theologically orthodox, morally upright, warmly pious, but the true direction of his life was a different story. And so there is a tremendous danger. And this is so, for me, this is not just getting our theology right. This is not just getting our doctrine of Scripture right. This is what's going to shape our lives. Now, here's where we're really in trouble. I'm going to stop. No, just ruined it for me. See what happened there? Go back one. Okay. Get ready to change it, okay? No! (laughs) It ruined my surprise. I had a surprise for you. Okay. Here is the way we're called to live. Here we are, all of us, living, if we're Christians, in the biblical story. But we're Americans. We're also being shaped by another story that's been shaping our culture for 200 and some years, going back a lot farther than that, what I would call modern and postmodern humanism. These two stories direct our lives in different ways. And here's what happens if the Bible is broken up into bits. I'll let you do it. You see that? little trick. That's about the best you're going to see in me technologically. I'm not terribly swift when it comes to technology, but I was trying to show little bits. And those little bits of the Bible breaking up and being absorbed into the cultural story. 
So that what happens is theological orthodox, morally upright, devotionally pious, idol worshipers. That for me is why it is so urgent to read the Bible. And that's what we learn from New Begin and so many others that are saying, do you realize that when I come back from India and others have come back from other areas and seen outside for our culture, they say, do you realize that the Christian church is being deeply shaped by the Western story? And idolatry permeates the churches, and they don't even seem to be aware of it. And we wonder why the church is shrinking. And his answer, and the answer of so many over the last three or four decades, has been the church has been so deeply compromised by its culture that the biblical story has often been subsumed in the cultural story. This is why this is so important. Because the mission of the church is to embody the good news of where God is taking history and to say, at the end of history, the knowledge of God is going to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And so I will embody the knowledge of God right now in the middle of history. The end of history is coming justice and love and shalom. And I will embody that right now in the middle of history. And as a community, we will say, good news. This is what's, where history is going, inviting people into it. But if we say, good news, good news, Christ has come to accomplish a new world. And they say, where? We say, well, look at the church. And they say, I don't see any difference. I don't see a community that looks any different. That good news will sound something like this. It will sound empty. When I was, um, I forget how many years ago, I was speaking to a college, no, no, I think it was a high school group. And I stood up in front of them and I started bragging about what a great trumpet player I was. And I told them that I had played all over the world and I had made these recordings and that you just can't believe what I can do with this trumpet. And I had my trumpet there. No, I had my wife's trumpet. And I had my wife's trumpet there and after bragging for about five minutes and watching the kids in front that knew me going, oh, what's he making an idiot of himself? Then I picked up her trumpet and I blew three of the worst notes you've ever heard. And after they gave me a standing ovation, I said to them, that's what our words sound like evangelistically if we say good news. Good news. God's salvation has come into the world in Christ. And then they say, where? And there's nothing to back it up. There's no community that, yes, broken, but in a broken way, taking baby steps towards more and more embodying the good news. And what's exciting for me, to be honest about what's happening in Phoenix, is many churches coming together with a vision for being good news together as one community. That's what we're called to be. That's what we're called to do. So this is why this is so important. Now, quickly gets in place. This is useless, right? Okay. Newbegin says this. He says, I do not believe that we can speak effectively of the gospel as a word addressed to our culture unless we recover a sense of the Scriptures as a canonical whole, as the story which provides the true context for our understanding of the meaning of our lives, both public and private. And recovery of the Bible as a story is urgent if we are to live over against the idols of our culture. Because we're having trouble with this, I'm going to stop now for a while, and I'm going to let you ask some questions. And so get some good discussion going then we'll stop um, after the discussion. 
And what, what I'm going to do is I'm going to, re- instead of having you come up here and embarrass yourself and give your question, I'm going to, you say it to me, and I'll repeat the essence of it, and just for the tape, and then we'll see if we answer it. So, any questions or comments that you'd like to ask or comments you'd like to make? <clears throat> One, two. Yes, sir. Okay. Okay. About which? Thanks for the question. Um, I think enormously. <laughs> uh, I, began, I began as a father 37 years ago, or 36 years ago now, and we now have nine grandchildren, and so we're in the next stage of trying to figure out what this means for being grandparents. And um, for us, you know, I don't think we started to understand what I'm sharing until probably as our kids were getting into the four, three, four, five. In other words, it was pretty early, but it was still, we were starting to ask. So I'll just tell you the kinds of things that we tried to do. We had family worship five nights a week, and we did it for an hour, and we would do it in such a way that we would, that we would cut out everything else, and there'd be nothing else that we would do for that hour, and not answering phone calls, etc. We made it urgent. And we told the biblical story to our kids a thousand times or more. And we would often act it out. We'd turn it into the prompt. We'd act it out and we'd tell the stories. We also got some good story books that told the Bible through, biblical story through. And my, my daughter now, she has her PhD and she lectures on this stuff. And she was one time asked when she was lecturing, she said, what was it about your home that really, that you remember? And she made this comment and just warmed my heart. She said, I remember as a little girl, I remember realizing that the Bible had, was telling this big story of what God was doing, and I was a little girl, and I could have a part in that story. I was a little girl, and I could have a part in that story. I could have a part in befriending kids on the playground that were, that were, not, uh, that were being vilified or being uh, bullied or whatever. And so that was one of the things we did. And other things that we did was, we actually, my wife and I, about five years ago, uh, or no, this would have been eight or nine years ago, my son-in-law and I were pastoring this church together, and we weren't supposed to be. The senior pastor left and left us with the church. And so we were trying to get a senior pastor. When he finally came and, and preached more, we asked ourselves, what is the best thing we can be doing? So what we did is we, we, taught, we put out in the bulletin, we are willing to work with young parents who have young kids, and talk about what it means to raise kids in the biblical story. And so we, ra- we, we laid out nine areas, and we had so much response that we actually uh, spent two, a whole year dealing with all the couples that wanted to do it. And one of the things that, I, and I can just think a few of the things that we, we, we talked about that I remember was so important on this question that you're asking, is we talked about how to help kids understand the cultural story. And the way we can do it, 
there are so many ways that little kids can understand the cultural story. I'm talking about the biblical story in family worship especially, but the cultural story. And so one of the things we did is I, we used two areas. We, we, we got rid of our TV, but we used, we still had a, we still could have movies. We had the TV but didn't have any TV cable. And we could still, we used movies and we used rock music as two ways to talk to our kids. I was just explaining to my son-in-law's parents who are visiting from Australia now. I was saying, I was telling her something that I just did a few years ago with my granddaughter. She came and she says, Granddad, I had a garden party. And I said, oh, what's a garden party? <laughs> she told me, and she was all excited about her garden party. And of course, my 19, I was, I was high school in the 60s and 70s, so immediately clicks into me, went to a garden party, everyone was there. And I'm thinking this, I'm thinking, did you know there's a song about a garden party? She says, no. And so what I did is I got on my computer, downloaded the song, we listened to the lyrics. And I said, you hear what it's saying? She says, yeah. She was only five. I said, it's saying, you can't please everyone, so you've got to please yourself. I said, do you think that's right? She said, oh, no. As we started talking about how our culture says you please yourself. But what we should be singing is, I said, let's sing this. You can't please everyone, so you got to please the Lord. I can sing a little bit better than that, but not much. But you sang something else. And so often the words of, the, of a lot of the music, our popular music, are giving a message, a powerful message. Another thing I've done with my students, not with my kids, well, we did it with our kids too, but we... Analyze commercials. What commercials are saying? They're lying through their teeth. They're just lying every day. And so what we need to say is, I don't believe you. When we did have a TV up until the time our kids were about four or five, we had our two older kids. We, we said you could watch this children's program as long as when you put the TV commercials, when the commercials come on, at the end of every commercial, you've got to say, who do you think you're kidding? So the kids at the end of every commercial had to say, who do you think you're kidding? <laughs> I remember one time my daughter, who was about four, saying to my son, who was about two, you got to say that, Ben, because if you don't, Dad's going to come in and turn off the TV. <laughs> so we developed in my oldest daughter, who became a real skeptic. I mean, she doesn't believe anything <laughs> that the media tells you. And she's now teaching her kids not to believe anything the media tells you. So there are those kinds of things you can do with young kids. But as the kids get older, there is so much more you can do in terms of discussion. And again, I think the popular media is one of the best ways to help kids think through the cultural story. And I think teaching the, cult, the biblical story in your home is the most important thing we can do as parents. And I think of Deuteronomy 4 where you, the book of Deuteronomy is Moses preaching to Israel. They're about to go into the land, and in Deuteronomy 7, I think it is, they said, when you go into the land, you're to live in such a way that the nations look at you and say, wow, what kind of law do you have that you live so righteously? And said, what kind of God are you serving that's right among you, changing you? He says, this is who you're to be as you go into the land. And he says in Deuteronomy 4, there are two things that are going to utterly subvert your missionary calling on the land. Number one is idolatry. He says the idols of the Canaanite story are going to shape you and you're going to get, turn away. But the second thing, and this is, should be the burden of every leader here, 
Second thing is you won't pass the story along to the next generation. Twice he says that in Deuteronomy 4. The next generation will not hear the story of God's mighty deeds. And here's the sad thing. If you continue through the story, that generation went into the land. The book of Joshua tells the story of God giving them the land. The book of Judges opens the most depressing book in the Bible. And it begins by saying, the next generation did not hear the good news of God's, the God's deeds and grew up without a knowledge of God. And then it describes the horrible, horrible cycles of, Deuteron- of, uh, of Judges. It says what happened. So I think what, the, what we're called to do with our kids is help them see the story that's being narrated by our technology, by our public media, by advertising. In other words, we are being immersed in a very, very different story every day of our lives, and our kids are being immersed in that. And I think one of the things Nubian said about himself that I would like to say about families. He said, I loved my first two hours in the morning, he said, because I would immerse myself in prayer and reading in the true story of the world and enabled me to get up and walk out and to face that false story that was being narrated so powerfully to me in so many ways. How can we help our kids? And I think if, you're, have, if you have leadership in churches, helping parents do this, because so often I, we found parents were, felt utter loss. And the, if, if knowing our culture is important, the thing that, tur- that, that became the most powerful discussion point that we couldn't get stopped, actually, it turned into three mornings. It was meant to be one. It was technology in the home. And the, the, the point that we were all were facing was technology is going to play a powerful role in shaping your kids. We actually read with our kids the book Technopoly when they got older. And basically the thesis of that book is every technology you take hold of is going to give you, is going to enable you to do something much better and going to take something away from you. It's going to give you something, take away something. Every technology. And so we, we believe that, and with our kids, struggled with, as the various technologies came into our home, talking about what can they do well, what can they do not so well. So, for example, <clears throat> when my youngest daughter got teenage years, we had, a, we, we had a class on Friday for her and her closest 27 friends and all their parents, as it turned out. And what we did is we talked, we read a number of books, and one of them was on technology. And these kids, they're 17 years old, and they decided they were going to give up. And this is going to make me sound so ancient, but I can't even remember what it is now. That's how, it's a technology from, how old is it? 10 years ago. It's like it's so 10 years ago. And, and that particular technology was a technology that you could begin to communicate in, to many people, whatever it was, you know, before texting. There was a time before texting. And before texting, and you could communicate. And so what they did is they've been using this, and they decided what they would do is stop using it for two weeks. At the end of two weeks, they'd come back together and talk, and they wouldn't allow the parents to talk with them. And they would talk, and they would say, what did we gain and what did we lose by not using this technology? I don't remember the whole discussion, but I remember saying that technology enables us to inform the rest of our friends about something really quick. But it's a lousy way to build relationships. And many of us have been doing that. We're going to stop using that to build relationships as friendships, and we're going to start using it only to communicate information quickly to a lot of people. So I think just raising these questions in the home and starting to ask, okay, 
what is the place of technology in God's story, in God's world? How do we understand the good things that have come from our culture while saying no to the idolatry? So I think it has huge implications. I'm only just beginning. It has huge implications for our families. And, there's, and I really believe that we can do everything right in the church except with our families, and we're going to lose the battle. We can do everything right. In other words, I think that even a church with very good discipleship has only got the people of that church for maybe, let's say, let's really exaggerate, five hours a week. All the rest of the time, that technology is powerfully inundating us with another story. And so we've got to, I'm not saying we become, you know, uh, people that withdraw from a culture and try to escape it. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying we're trying to make discerning, our kids discerning from the ground up so that they can discern more and more the idols of the culture. And I've found, this is my experience, that children can understand this better than adults because they're not, they haven't got so much debris to clear away. You can talk about this very quickly. There's a book called The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly that was put out by an, a British fellow. It's out of print now, but you can probably get it on Amazon some way. In that book, what he does is says, here's how you teach children worldview. Cultural worldview tells stories. I can remember just one of them to give you an example. The opening story is about Imelda Marcos, who was the wife of the Filipino prime minister many years ago when it was written. And apparently she had a collection of shoes that numbered in the thousands or something. I mean, she had a whole thing built for her shoes. And so he tells, this, the, the, he tells the story wonderfully about the shoes and then says, here's a picture of something gone wrong. When we start to look for things to satisfy us, those stories stuck with kids. Those stories stick with kids. And looking for stories to teach about, teach about a cultural worldview can be very powerful. So there's a start. Yes. I'm sorry that I didn't repeat the first question. The first question is show how the story relates to the training of children. I hope you got that, whoever's listening by tape. And this story, this question is about how do you communicate to this to unbelievers? In fact, Tim Keller makes the comment that this is the only way to evangelize the sophisticated unbelievers in New York. That's his conviction. That if you piecemeal the evangelism, you're not going to communicate. And also, I'll give you an example because I love this example and I use it all over. It's a friend of mine, a pastor, and he told me this story and I thought, oh, what a great example. He was getting his hair cut in a... In a um, in a hairdresser salon, and the guy who was cutting his hair was gay. And this guy knew that he was a pastor, his view on homosexuality. They knew who each other were. It was awkward. And then finally, he wanted to break it, and he wanted to say, show him I love you and I care about you. So he was looking for a way to break the ice. And he said to him, and I think this is a beautiful way to share the good news, he says, what kind of world would you like to live in? And the hairdresser was kind of startled by the question. He says, well, I guess a world of justice. I'd love to see true justice in the world where people didn't live in pain. People had food to eat, where there was true justice for the poor and so on. And he says, I guess I'd like to live in a world of peace where there's no more war and hostility and people kill one another. And he goes on describing this world. And then my friend says, 
did you know what that's what the Christian faith is about? And he describes, he tells the story quite funny. He says, this guy said, no. He says, yeah. He says, no. He says, yes. The Bible tells a story about the way our rebellion against God has made this mess. And it tells us how God is going to heal it and fix it and turn it into the world you're looking for. And he's, a, he's done it in Jesus. And the guy kept saying, no. He didn't believe him. He says, that's not what I've heard. I've heard Christians, and they're very selfish. All they want is they want to get out of here and go to heaven, and they want to have nothing to do with this world. And my friend says, yeah, there's a lot of misunderstanding that way. And I can, he didn't say I can tell you where it comes from, but he could have. He just says, well, yeah, there's a lot of misunderstanding that we're, and I apologize that sometimes we get it mixed. He says, but no, I, I'm telling you, the Bible tells a story about God is going to bring the kind of world you want, and he's done it, and he's going to do it in Jesus. And the guy didn't believe him. And finally, he, he, what he said is, I'm going to beat your church next Sunday, and I'm going to see if you really believe that. And he and his partner showed up for the next two Sundays. And he went home and said to his partner, he says, you're not going to believe this. This pastor says that the Christian faith is about make healing the world and bringing about a world of justice and peace and so on. I think that's an outstanding example of the way because we can talk very easily about, you, know, you could personalize that or you can, I'm going to make up a word, word cosmic size it. In other words, you could make this a big picture of where the world's going or you can say as a person who's hurting and in pain, you can say this, uh, you know, th- the kind of world God is, is going to heal and bring about is a world where there's no more death, where a person loses something they love, or a world where there's no more broken relationships as you deal with people who are hurt. And so I think that this story can give us powerful ways to share good news where it really is good news. And I think Keller's right when he says, if you share the gospel like this, you're a sinner, Christ died for you, and if you want to be freed from that guilt, you better trust him that increasingly the postmodern person doesn't know what you're talking about. It's not that that's not true. They just don't understand that. And it doesn't sound a whole lot like good news to them. It sounds like a lot of doctrine. And so there's, there's going to come that point where they got to hear that. That's part of the gospel. But that the gospel is so much bigger than that. And yes, it's being freed from the guilt of our sin. It's being freed from the power of our sin. But it's being freed in the context of the whole world being liberated and the whole of human race. And somebody asked me, he says, you're not saying that all people are saved. No, I'm not. I'm saying all of human life, but only people in Christ. But, it's, but it's the good news for them is that God is going to heal this world. That's great news. And it's the whole world. I mean, that, if you want language, I love this little threefold bang, bang, bang. Matthew 19, 28, Jesus speaks of the renewal of all things. In Acts 3, Peter in his sermon speaks of the restoration of all things. And Paul in Colossians 1 speaks about the reconciliation of all things. There's a lot more that could be said, but I'm just saying there's a bang, bang, bang. There, Jesus, Paul, Peter, yeah, I think they're worth listening to. Okay, any other questions, comments? Yes, one and then over here. One, three, four. <coughs> it's a great question. The question is, how, what, what are some, exam, some helpful ways to help people read the Bible as one story? I might get this this tomorrow. I don't know if the PowerPoint's working and we're all here. 
But one of the things that two people, and a lot more than two people, but I'm going to quote two people. So I'm giving you this. This is a preview for tomorrow night. Tom Wright and Richard Bauckham, again, two people I think are leading biblical scholars, they say something like this, that part of our missional calling in the world is to provide summaries of the true story of the world for people. What they're saying is, if you pick up your Bible and say, I am reading the Bible through this whole year, and I'm going to go from Genesis to Revelation, and nothing's going to stop me. Then you get bogged down in Leviticus. You say, what in the world is going on in Leviticus? And then you read some of these chapters, and you say, this is the weirdest stuff I've ever heard, but you know it's the Bible, so you can't say that. (laughs) So you keep reading, and soon you say, okay, I'm out of of Leviticus. Numbers. Oh, man, i got to start reading these chronologies, these genealogies. I can't even pronounce these names. And then you read, okay, I'm going to stick with it, and you keep reading. And then you get to Deuteronomy, and boy, it's really fun for the first chapters. Then all, more laws. They're expanding the laws, and more weird stuff. And you're trying to say, what does this have to do with anything in the world? And you keep reading, and you get to Joshua, and you're reading, man, oh, man, what's God doing saying, kill all those Canaanites? What kind of story is this? And you keep reading the story. Then you get to Josh, Judges, and you keep, if you're still with it. And you get to Judges, and you get to the last two stories in the book of Judges, and you hear an X-rated version of a story that, if you put it into a movie, would be X-rated, where, where a, a woman is gang-raped, and then her body is cut up and sent throughout Israel. You say, this is a, this is a very edifying story. This is wonderful good news. What are we reading here? And you keep going, and you just, I mean, you're reading. And what's happening is you're not only reading the storyline, you're getting taken off into Proverbs that all these bits and pieces. Then you take off into the Psalms and you're there forever because there's 150 of them. And you're reading all this poetry and what's happening is you're all over the place and by the end you're saying, I don't know what I'm reading anymore. It sure is edifying, some of it, but I don't know what I'm reading. And I think that's what the Bauckham and Wright are talking about. They're saying, we've got to have summaries so that people can see what the forest looks like. And when they've got the trees, maybe they can't figure out how the Leviticus tree fits into the forest, but hey, it's okay. Maybe later. But at least they keep on track. And somewhere, they're, at least they, they know where they're at in the story somewhat. And they have a sense of where it's going and how it's going. And so I think we need summaries of all kinds. I think we need summaries. Tomorrow I'll give you a summary in five minutes of the story. I think we need a five-minute summary. On my website, I have a seven-page summary that you can read, and you can read it in 10 minutes, one summary. It gets downloaded thousands of times each month because people, that seven pages gets help, is very helpful, apparently. We need smaller summaries. Drama of Scripture, has a third of it's been taken out and turned into another book called The True Story of the World. That's a smaller book for Bible studies, people who are impatient with reading drama. <laughs> and then there's drama, and then you can keep going. Summaries need all sorts. And what we need are those summaries, but they better not replace the reading of the Bible because it's the Bible that's the living word. It's the Bible that the Spirit of God speaks and brings us to Christ. It's not drama. It's the Bible. But what these summaries do is they keep you on track. And so I think one of the best ways you can, things you can do is get hold of the summary. wish I had a blackboard here. But um, you may know... The, the little, um, there's a 
five little, the six little, um, it's a diagram, six little symbols that um, has been created by Chris Gonzalez. Have you seen it? Did you share it last time? Okay, those six symbols. That's a beautiful way. He, he created that, that, those symbols when some lady who had been a Christian for a while heard him talk about the story of the Bible says, I don't know what you're talking about. And he says, sits down, he says, do you understand this? And he gives six symbols. He says, I get that. Okay, there you go. And so in other words, what can happen? Even six symbols. All, you can go from six symbols to bigger books. We need summaries. And the summaries don't replace the Bible. They help us read it well. And let me just ease any fears that some of you might have. Some people, some, occasionally a person has said to me, you know, this sounds new to me. It sounds awfully new to me. I've never heard this before. I don't trust new things. I said, I get that. I said, but let me share something with you. <laughs> the Jews understood the Bible as one story their whole lives. The church understood the Bible as one story up until the 18th century. There's a book called um, The Eclipse of Biblical Narrative written by a biblical scholar from Yale. And in there, he argues that because of the influence of Augustine and Western culture, the Bible was read as one story for all through Western culture until the 18th century. This is maybe going beyond where most of you want to go. But in the 18th century, the Newtonian physical paradigm started to dominate. And science explained the world in terms of bits with bigger laws. And so biblical scholarship followed and said, let's understand the little bits of the Bible, and then maybe we can turn it into our theologies. And his argument in the Eclipse of Biblical Narrative is, starting with the Enlightenment, the, the church stopped reading the Bible as one story. And so in a sense, what we're doing is returning to the way the Jews and the Christians have always read the Bible. There's nothing new about this. But we need the summaries to help us because that story, as many have said during the Middle Ages, it was impressed on people, not through having your own Bible. You have your own Bible. I have my own Bible. You know what? I have a lot of versions of the Bible. I have, a whole st I have this many versions of the Bible, and I got rid of a bunch. I have all those versions of the Bible, and as I, I can take any one off the shelf I want and read it, but there was such a thing called the printing press, that came about after the Reformation. Before that, you didn't have your own Bibles. And so the way the biblical story was impressed on people for so many years was that the Benedictine monks would read it every day in the town square, in the town church, and people would come and listen to it, and they would read it and explain it and tell the story. And they would also explain it with, with festivals. They also had um, stained glass windows. I don't know if you've been to Notre Dame in Paris the biblical story down one side and down the other, it's magnificent. The story of Genesis 1 through 3 is told through a story. And then you go on the other side, the story of Jesus from birth to resurrection is told on the other side. They had all these things that were telling the story in all kinds of ways, trying to help people live into that. And we, need to, we now have much more resources in our, at our, hand, in our uh, disposal to tell the story. So we need summaries. Scholars get good at giving a short, uh, making a short answer long. <laughs> I should have just said the first thing. Yes. I do. Uh, the, the question is, do you think part of the reason the church is in decline in the West is we're not reading the Bible as much? And, I, and your question, and I'll answer with a sound yes and then say, it's backed up by all kinds of research, all kinds of research that every year people read less. 
Did you know that last year, I forget what the numbers are, but more than 50% of Americans didn't read one book? And apparently, the statistics are that most Christians are not reading their Bibles. They're into Facebook. It takes a lot of time. They're into all kinds of social media. They haven't got time. And I remember one of my daughters saying, she used to love to read. And I remember her coming to the point, she said, I'm spending so much time on Facebook, I'm not reading anymore. Not just the Bible, but other things. And so she sort of had to make a decision. And I think that we're not, so forget this. No, don't forget. But for a moment, set aside summaries. Reading the Bible is one story. We're not even reading the Bible. We're not even reading the Bible. And so I'm last, again, last few weeks ago I was in Brazil. And they're saying, the problem there, and I think it's even more intense here, he says, the degree to which they're reading the Bible, they're reading the New Testament. So, so what they're doing is missing the first four acts or three acts of Scripture that sets the stage for the last part. And so what you can do is you can take Jesus and mission and put it in your own story because you haven't got the biblical story to set it in. And you can set it in your own story and make it mean whatever you want. And he was saying, this, this pastor was saying, this is a real problem here in Brazil because we're not reading the Old Testament. I said, I said, I'll bet you you asked a lot of Christians in the, in the United States and Canada, we, we're not reading the Old Testament either, at least not to the degree of really being able to master it. So, yes, I do think, again, long answer is a yes, I think you're exactly right. We're not reading their Bibles. It's a shame. Th- think of my story of that man in Africa, trembling, taking the Word of God. It's a beautiful story. Is there any other questions or comments? Yeah. The comment, it was a comment, not a question. The comment was you recently read about a man in Afghanistan who was a Muslim who said, I want to compare the Bible to the Quran, so read it through a couple of times and was impressed by it. Did you say he became a Christian or not? No. But he read it because he knew it was important. It's good. Yes, sir. Two excellent questions in that comment. Excellent questions. The first question, tell me if I got both of them. Number one, how do we know the stories that are shaping us? But the second thing you alluded to is really important. How can we know those stories and the way they're causing us to misread the Bible? Those are two things you're saying, right? Right? I'll say misread then. (laughs) You're being very kind. I'll be harsh. Okay. Okay. Oh, boy, this is huge. Um, The book we wrote following drama of Scripture was living at the crossroads to tell the Western story because we kept getting asked this question. So in that book, we tell the story of the West. And so I believe that you can speak of stories and story. Um, When somebody comes from another part of the world into a culture and sees it for the first time, they start to realize with all the diversity, there is an underlying unity that holds people together. And they, and they can see that clearly, even though you can't see it when you're, the, when you're living in it. And missionaries and, uh, and then increasingly scholars from other parts of the world, as they look at different cultures, are able to articulate this. And we're living in a time of real blessing, I think, in that the growth of the Christian church in the Southern Hemisphere is helping Western culture see their stories and their story in ways that we never could before. There's a uh, Chinese proverb that says, if you want to know about water, don't ask a fish. If you want to know about American culture, don't ask an American. 
Especially, don't ask an American if they're swimming in polluted water because they don't know. That's the water they've always swam in. You want to know Brazil? Don't ask a Brazilian story. Don't ask a Brazilian. He can't tell you and so on because we're swimming in it all the time. And the marvelous thing is that today there's this growing number of biblical Christian scholars, wise people that can say, let me tell you the West, you haven't got the whole gospel. There's a lot of things that are being that are being misshaped by your in your reading of Scripture because of your idolatry. Um, so I want to just say two more things. One is the four things. I used to teach a course at Regent College in Vancouver, and the title of the course was Contextual Third World Theologies. We'd read what Africans, Asians, and Latin Americans said about the Christian faith in the West. And then we'd ask, we'd hold that up to a mirror to ourselves and say, is that true? And I believe all these are true. There's four things that Asians, Latin Americans, and Africans are telling us that we better listen and not say, well, everyone's out of step except my son, Johnny. You know, everybody else is out of step except us. We better listen and say, if three different continents are saying about our Christianity, it's this way, we better listen. And there, there's a four things, but they're adding a fifth increasingly. The first thing they're saying is that you are reading your Bible through individualistic glasses. The rest of us in the world don't know what that means. We don't know what that means. We, live, we look at the world through communal glasses. Recently, I heard somebody who made this point to Latin Americans. He said, you got to have community. And the person said, are you talking down to us? An American, are you talking down to us? We know that. And I said, I don't think he knew that you know that. <laughs> he was thinking about the United States as he talked to the Brazilians. Brazilians saying, we know that. We understand community. We understand the communal dimensions of Scripture. We also understand, as you heard from the Hindu, the cosmic dimension of Scripture. But do you realize that the Bible tells a cosmic story with a community at the center, and that individuals by faith are included in that community and part of that story. And what we've done in the West is we've focused so much on our inclusion by faith that we forgot the church and we forgot the cosmic dimensions. And we, no wonder we have such a weak understanding of the church where we jump around and if we don't like it here, we go somewhere else. So the individualism is the first thing. The second thing they say is our rationalism. They said, you've been trained in a culture that can rationally think through the faith. And so you can doctrinally say a lot, but your lives sometimes don't line up with your doctrine. So I can give an example of taking kids out that I catechize. And as I took them out and I asked them, how do you walk by the Spirit daily? They looked at me and their eyes became crossed. What do you mean? Ask me about the Holy Spirit, and I'll tell you who it is. It's the third person of the Trinity. I'll give you a doctrinal answer, but don't ask me how I walk by the Spirit. I said, well, Paul asks, says you must do that. How are you doing it? Don't ask me about my, I don't know. You know we are good at doctrinal formulations, and, we, and, and sometimes we can substitute that for Christian obedience. That's scary. Think of the book of James. We look at the Scripture, we look at its mirror, and then we walk away and forget what we look like. James kept hammering away at this idea, and he says, if we forget that perfect law that gives freedom, and later he says, you believe? <laughs> the demons believe, and they tremble. But if you don't obey, you know, what do you, do you really believe? And so I think that the idea of our rationalism is dangerous. I think, a th and we do that to the Bible. We turn it into theological bits. I think a third thing that the, Christ, that the church in the Southern Hemisphere is saying is that you're reading it through dualistic glasses. 
everywhere in the world, from all of history, from the beginning of recorded history that we know, till today, and in every culture of the world except one, Europe, North America, Western culture, religion is seen as the undergirding powerful unity that binds culture together. In the United States, we say there's a separation between church and state, and what we mean is a separation between most of public life and the gospel. And Christians happily go along with that and say, yes, we'll put the gospel over here, we'll call religion over here, and that religion is good for our Sundays, it's good for our morals, and it's good for our kids, but we better not bring it into politics or so forth. And so they say that's dualistic. Bringing, putting religion over here and the rest of life here is nobody else believes that. We understand Hinduism or Islam. We understand it's an undergirding, unifying thing. Well, why do we not see humanism in our culture as this powerful religion that's unifying us? Only because of the eyes that we have that are deeply shaped by dualism. The fourth one is what's, what they call spiritualism. They say... Many of you Christians in the West, especially the United States and Canada, believe that you're going to live in heaven forever when you die. Where does the Bible teach that? The answer is it doesn't. It teaches that the new Jerusalem will come down. At the end of the story, the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven to earth, and the loud voice announces, now the dwelling of God is with man. And the ending is the resurrection on the new creation. That's what the Bible teaches consistently. And so they say, where did you get this spiritualism? And then, if they're a little bit more sophisticated, they say, we haven't got Plato in our history, so we don't know where you get this. And so that's the fourth one. The fifth one that is increasingly coming out that wasn't when I was teaching 15 years ago is consumerism. You're turning your churches and even the gospel into a consumer item. And your worship is how you feel about that worship and the experience you have. Your mission trips, so-called, to other parts of the world are what you experience when you go there. You're, you're allowing the consumer culture to turn all your experiences into consumption. So you could say those are stories, or you could say those are elements of a much bigger story, and this is how I'd want to put it, that started way back with the Greeks and has come forward till today. And we can tell that story, and when we tell that story, then all of a sudden it gives us so much clarity on what's happening in our world today. So understanding the biblical story needs to be followed up by saying, well, we've got to know our cultural story as well. Because not only is it shaping us in many ways, it's also shaping our reading of the Bible. Other questions or comments? Yes. This will be the last one unless... Any, anybody sitting there burning with a question? Burning? You have to say it and keep everybody here? No, okay. I think it was 1928. Colossians 1. I think it's around 1, between 15 and 18. Okay. Let's stop, and we'll see you tomorrow night, and we'll have this working. Right, Michelle?